This is Geek Gab with your hosts, Dornall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, November 5th, 2022. Uh, Dornall, how was your week? Hey, man. My week sucked. Super stressful. Uh, mostly I in real life stuff but uh, there are a few exciting things to talk about the uh, fantastic Brovenloff wrapped up last weekend like we were uh, discussing last show uh, so I'd love to talk about that and I also finished off October Halloween with a bang um, I mentioned it in the title of the show here uh, I watched the classic the Exorcist. That was an excellent way to finish off the holiday. Uh, so, your first, your first, first time. time. I've I've heard I've heard it's uh, it was I had heard it was a classic. And uh, when I asked my brother, "Hey, we're going to watch The Exorcist for Halloween. Do you want to join us?" Uh, he said something that I've heard from other people. He said, "No thanks. Once was enough." <laughs> Uh, so I'm really excited to talk about those today. And I heard you caught up with your Halloween stuff as well. Yes. So, uh, so the exorcist rattled him, did it? <laughs> Maybe it did. He, he declines to go into detail. And that's um, about it. Well... For reasons I don't want to discuss on the air, I also had a stressful week. Mm. So we're going to set that aside and just concentrate on the show. <laughs> For sure. Um, uh, so what did you... Uh, now, you told me that you wanted to uh, watch A Nightmare on Elm Street because I had reminded you, but you were going to try to watch The Five Nightmares on Elm Street. How did that go? Um, problems from in real life got in my way. <laughs> um, so those of you who follow me on, like, other places, you know, on, on Twitter or whatever, you probably uh, already know why. But again, putting that aside for the show. Um, I did, however, get to watch the first one. So... You know, we can talk about it. I'd love to hear what you. Uh, we didn't plan the show ahead of time, so I'm just going to ask you here live. Uh, where do you want to go first? What do you want to talk about first? Oh, we can do the Nightmare on Elm Street one first. Uh, I quite enjoyed it. It was a great movie. Again, first time I've ever seen it, um, but it was very, very enjoyable, and I can certainly see why Freddy Krueger became a, a horror icon. Um, he was so unique, so memorable, and he absolutely fit in perfectly. Uh, the movie had a really great plot that was completely singular and not like any other teen slasher plot. 
but it also worked perfectly as a team slasher. Absolutely. A really, uh, really nice plot, really nice story and, you know, tightly edited and, uh, and presented. And yeah, Freddy Krueger is a classic villain for a reason. Um, to answer Fiona Wolf in the chat, yeah, that's the you know infamous scene where the uh, the poor girl starts falling asleep in the bathtub, and Freddy's claw comes out of the water right between her knees. Oh. Absolutely terrifying! Uh, absolutely terrifying! Uh, what a great film! Well, tell me more. What what else did you like about it? Um. They took a. They took the time to create inventive scenes. Um, inventive scenes in the dream world, but they didn't overdo that. Um, the crossover between dream world and reality was handled really well. Um, I'm assuming they didn't have a huge budget, but the budget that they had, they spent in all the right places. Mm-hmm. So the big the big scenes got the punch they needed. Um, I, I want to actually It helped ahead, because they didn't thought. lavish every single scene with weirdness. Uh, that goes to what I wanted to dig into again. I mentioned last week that the way they did the dream transition was good because they didn't make it overtly dreamy at first. They didn't try to hammer you over the head with weird stuff. It would you, you would know that you were in a dream sequence because first of all there would be a cut. There would be it, it would it would go from one cut to the next. So it wouldn't there wouldn't be a seamless transition uh, in the middle of a scene. And it would appear to be absolutely normal until something absurd happens and that's that's where the shock comes in the wow comes you're like oh oh no oh no she actually she's not really there she just fell asleep on the bed Uh uh-oh right yeah awesome so well done And, and yeah good point on the on the budget and the thing i like too is they let the heroine be clever they let her be creative so that once she figured out a little bit of how Freddy's dream world worked, she could use it against him. And it didn't neutralize his power, but it let her, you know, sneak around a little bit and do a couple of things. Even if it didn't, there, there's just one sequence where she did something that was really, really clever that worked, and then Freddie figured something else out to come back and succeed a different way. But you were like, oh, she made her seem intelligent and scrappy, and you rooted for her even more because she wasn't just a helpless victim. And she wasn't just, you know, grabbing stuff off a counter and throwing it at the vic- at the uh, villain. She actually learned something and paid attention to it 
and put it to good use. And, you know, that really elevates her into uh, above a lot of uh, heroines who tend to be, you know, Passive. tended to be smarter and, and more capable than the other victims anyway. But yeah, I, I just, I just thought that was great. Yeah. Because in, even in the slasher movies, yeah, you, you're, you're going to see the, the sinful kids get killed and everything. It's, it's, they've got these metaphors, right. For, uh, you know, sin and punishment and everything, but you know, you do want to root for the kids to figure it out you know they yeah. a nightmare on elm street in particular even if you don't know anything even if like this is 1984 and you're watching for for the first time you're about 10 to 15 minutes in when you get it right you you oh oh th these are dreams and he can actually kill them while they're dreaming and then you're sitting there wondering okay when is she going to figure it out when is she going to figure it out um and she does and you're you're rooting for them to survive, even though you sort of enjoy the spectacle of the hilarious, the totally campy death scenes. Like Johnny Depp's was uh, probably the funniest, where he just disappears into the bed and then fountains of blood shoot out. I mean, come on. They must have used, you know, three gallons of corn syrup on that scene alone. Yeah. Uh, but it's or contrast that with a terrible horror movie made by someone who only thinks he's a horror fan, uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. Uh, oh. They, you know, they deliberately they cast Rain Wilson, and I don't know if this was his first uh, film or was this how he became uh, more mainstream. But we're talking about Dwight Schrute. This guy's unfortunately got one of the most punchable faces in Hollywood. That's the whole point. You don't root for these uh, these kids. Um, Friday the third, not Friday the thirteenth. Um, well, Friday the thirteenth too. Like they're totally innocent, um, and you kind of want them to figure out who the heck is murdering them all. Um, but I was thinking more along the lines of, oh, what's the one? And, and oh. I just want to put a plug in for the first two Friday the thirteenth movies because they're both just incredibly good movies they they are much much better than the rest of the series and i'm not saying i dislike the rest of the series because i love most of them up until uh you know they got jason in space and takes manhattan those are bad but man those first two are clever <laughs> they're really sharp Three is um, when they went 3D, uh, and that's when the series started going a little bit down. They actually made a 3D, Jason? Yeah. It's Friday the 13th, part three, in 3D. And when you watch it, you can tell because they're doing all kinds of stuff on the screen that if you're just watching it in 2D, make no sense. Uh, and then you, you know, but if you're watching it in 2D and you know that it's a 3D movie, it makes total sense. It's like, oh, they're making sure that the audience gets their, you know, money's worth or that the studio gets their money worth out of that 3D scene. Like a guy, they literally spend uh, almost a minute on a guy maneuvering a rake so that's poking right in the camera. 
Oh, yeah. Um, so it'll poke you right in the eye. Oh, wow. That's coming right out of the screen. That's impressive. Look at that technology. So, yeah. Yep. So when it becomes about the spectacle. Um, oh, that, but, that reminds me. Uh, I did see something exceptionally awful along those lines. Are you ready for this? Okay. I'm braced. Have, have you seen the 2004 Freddy versus Jason? No, I have not. But you gave me a great one-word review last night. Yes, I believe the answer was don't. Don't. You said, I've got a very short review. Don't. And I'm like, that, that's a really short review. You're right. <laughs> uh, it, I could do my diligence and give you some of the whys if you like, but but just don't. <laughs> I do <laughs> I would like a little bit of elaboration, but sure. <laughs> all right. Well, first of all, it's um, early aughts uh, where all movies were bad, uh, and this, all the soundtracks were done by Lincoln Park and Disturbed, uh, and they all looked the same. So right out of the gate, stylistically terrible. They, there are two really good points in it. The writers had a great setup for the premise. The premise being Freddy's more or less been defeated. The kids, the kids in town aren't dreaming about him anymore. And, you know, Jason's dead as of his latest installment, right? Again. Of course, again, right? Of course, we know Jason can't really die. Uh, so the setup is, while uh, Jason is dreaming freddie you know wakes him up in his dreams and through shenanigan shenanigans dream like shenanigans convinces jason to rise from his slumber you know to you know to come back from the dead again and terrorize the kids in his town like <laughs> hey go to elm street and i know there are i know there are teenagers out there having sex I need you to go kill them with a machete so that so that the people who remember me uh, the people who remember the stories of Freddy remember Freddy as and as soon as the kids in that town start remembering me I can come back because I can haunt their dreams what a cool setup completely wasted on characters you don't care about that you don't want to succeed that aren't terribly clever they're just coming up with the clever things that the writers wrote. Um, and of course, everything in the first hour of the movie is just a waste of time because you don't care about how many kids die and for what reason or whatever. Uh, because all you care about is the, the halfway point where Jason gets on Freddy's nerves and Freddie decides, Freddie decides that you know this town isn't big enough for the two of us, and so they start fighting each other, and that's all that matters. Uh, one one other actual good thing about it, dude, Robert England at this point has been playing Freddy Krueger for like twenty years. He has so much fun being that guy, uh, and they let <laughs> they let him ham it up. So even though Jason is 
completely silent, you know, bloodthirsty monster. Uh, Freddy, it's like Spider-Man fighting the Hulk. And, <laughs> and I, I hate to use that analogy, but that's exactly what popped into my head. Freddy Krueger's a scrappy little wise ass uh, who's a who is trying to dance and you know stay out of Jason's grasp, and the the payoff isn't worth it, and it, the payoff's just not good enough. But um, to watch Freddy Krueger chew scenery and deliver his one-liners, uh, fans of Freddy will get something out of it, but it's not worth the price of admission, which includes the hour of bullshit beforehand. That's too bad. Yeah. Oh, yeah, great premise ruined by uh, awful awful writing and storytelling. Where have I heard this before? Yeah. Because I, I was like, up until that point, I was like, wow, that, that sounds actually kind of awesome. <laughs> This is a great setup. Yeah. That all sounds cool. I'm ready to see it now. Let's stop the show. No. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I get it now. Hey, um, although that, that reminds me, you might appreciate, you might try and figure out, okay, so if, if Freddy isn't, if Freddy isn't being dreamed by the children and, and Jason's doing all the killing, how do they even interact? <laughs> all right. I'm going to give the writers this one. At a drunken party, a a drunken girl is passed out, and one of the other revelers decides he's going to take advantage of her Ooh. at that time. So that's how they get the two killers' um, mo's to intersect, because Freddie's trying to kill her while she's you know while she's asleep, and Jason's trying to kill the. Uh, so, so they actually fight over the kill. Who gets to kill these two uh, teenagers? Oh. Yeah. So that's so I I spoiled that for you when I was watching that. I was like, ah, oh, that's kind of clever, and it didn't make the rest of the movie better. Well, <laughs> so that's my pocket review. When I say don't, that's what I mean. I have seen worse, but that doesn't mean I want to go watch that just because i've seen worse doesn't mean that makes that a good movie yeah and it's a shame um because it uh, it was it was kind of a a very clever idea how do we how that how do we get freddie and jason into a fight and uh then the the idea in the setup was clever and cool but didn't make for a good movie um Emmett Fitzhume says the sequel with Corey Feldman and the Psyching Girls wasn't too bad. I I liked, I think I've seen up to number six or number seven, uh, and I liked all the Friday the 13th. I don't want to, I'm not trying to put them down or say they're bad movies. Um, I just, uh, they're just not as good as the first two. And the first two movies are notable for the fact that they don't have the classic Jason. The classic Jason wasn't introduced until number three. Um, so, I mean, the classic undead zombie Jason uh, with the mask didn't even come about until number three. So they're completely different movies. 
Um, and in terms of having clever writing, clever stories and stuff, they are ahead above the rest of them. So that's all I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not putting the other ones down. I, I love them. I, I, I enjoy them. Um, but yeah, they're, they're completely different movies. And I think they're, they, I think they're better movies. A lot of people disagree with me. <laughs> A lot of people don't understand. I, 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 I held forth on this in the Pulp Rev, uh, with some Pulp Rev people I know. And, uh, I got a lot of uh, I got a lot of not so exci excited reactions. <laughs> so I'm aware I may be in the minority on this. I don't care because I don't have to care. That's the benefit of being a red blooded American, by gosh and by golly. <laughs> um, you also watched another halloween movie did i uh-oh i was just gonna talk about the i was thought i talked about i just the exorcist yeah oh i thought i had talked about it already no <laughs> i talked about talking about it that's what we do here we talk about yeah. talking uh, the Exorcist. To things that are horrible. Threatened. <laughs> we don't actually do it. That'd be crazy. That'd be crazy. I'm so glad that I ended Halloween with complete trash like Freddy vs. Jason and one of the best with The Exorcist. Uh, it's It has stood the test of time for a reason. Uh, when was the last time you saw it? Uh... Last year, I'm pretty sure it was Ooh. last year. Fresh, fresh reaction. Um, I don't know. I don't know what you've heard. The title of the show comes from a pea soup because that's what they used for the, you know, the projectile vomit, and in, in, in those infamous, infamous scenes. Um, I've got a joke with that, but I don't know that it's appropriate. And then it's then it's probably not. <laughs> I mean, let's let's give it the let's give it the proper treatment, right? Like, I'm just it? saying that if things go badly, I may be vomiting up bee soup myself. <laughs> be, be sure to get that on video. We can make a horror movie out of it. Ooh. Uh, what Exorcist 1973 film, uh, and the setup is that this uh, this little 12 year old girl in Washington D.C. gets invaded by a demonic spirit uh that's what you get apparently ouija boards were big in the 70s i didn't know that it seems uh seems like something crazy to mess with but anyway uh yeah so that little girl uh is having severe mental problems the family eventually turns to uh the church who has to bring in an old man you know an old uh, an old priest who is uh the last guy, you know, the guy who most recently did an exorcism. And so he and a younger priest go in and and do it. And it's terrifying. It is an actually terrifying film uh, and very entertaining, too. 
Uh, so that's the setup. My that was my that was my impression. My um, my other impression was, and uh, and you know, forgive the uh, language here, but half the movie I was just watching what those events unfold, going, "What the fuck? What the fuck?" Um, absolutely insane. But uh, and it just it just tells the story simply and it doesn't rush into all the great moments it just lets the story unfold it lets the horror unfold naturally you know if there's just this girl not exactly in a normal household uh you know her mother's a, a rich and famous actress but she starts off normal and then starts acting a little weird and then starts acting creepy and then the demon really takes hold and she starts harming herself and vomiting pea soup and you know she's got self-inflicted scars and cuts and everything you know and there's a and there's a subplot you know there's an implication that she actually murdered someone under the effects of this demon and you just every everything that keeps happening as this thing progresses and and the terror in her mother as she's trying to get doctor after doctor after doctor to figure out what could be causing this complete like that's not my daughter what could be causing her to completely change personalities uh that sort of thing uh, so the horror in this film affects every character it's not just the audience, the audience's terror and, uh, you know, being disturbed by what happens to the girl, like what this demon does to the girl. It's, it affects every character in the film, and, and you can just see it on their faces and the way they act and react to everything. Um, that, such that by the end, during the actual performance of the exorcism, the entire film is soaked in that dread that was that's how i felt about it i saw the exorcist for the very first time when i was young Ooh. um early teens maybe younger than that then i also watched the exorcist too which uh what wasn't as good. <laughs> oh boy. If you're looking for a repeat of the sheer terror uh, that is The Exorcist, don't watch The Exorcist 2. It, it's, it's not good. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, and, and the thing about The Exorcist, it's not, uh, it is about a modern priest. And by about, I mean, I'm talking about the story underneath the story. Uh, what happens to one of the characters as he's going through the events of the story. As he begins the movie, um, and I presume the book too, uh, because The Exorcist is based off of a book. Um called The Exorcist. Um, he's a modern priest who um, 
is really struggling with his faith. And then his faith is, is, is weak and he comes up against something that initially he thinks is just a psychological problem because and because he's a trained psychiatrist as well yeah so he's, yeah. He, he he even at, at one point he says uh you know we used to do exorcisms all the time but we know so much more about you know human psychology and and brain chemistry and and stuff like that i, I that wasn't exactly about, i don't think stuff like that is in the script but yeah he even he even says that in the film so he comes face to face with genuine real evil and maybe the vast majority of cases you know people would get called in on would be genuine psychological difficulties of schizophrenia and that's not multiple personality syndrome that's when people hear voices sometimes urging them to do bad things maybe those are just you know the vast majority of time psychological issues and he's right and his worldview is right from a psychological standpoint but this one time it's genuine supernatural evil um and at its core, that's what horror used to be. The violation of, you know, somebody, uh, somebody in the Pulp Rev or around the Pulp Rev just said a couple of weeks ago or a month ago um, that it was the weird um but it is the violation of natural law. It is violation of normalcy. It is violation of the good, um, the violation of moral laws. Um, and it is, uh, horror is when a supernatural evil is inflicted upon the innocent and the innocent suffer and it is dispelled by turning to faith in God. That's what the original core themes of, of horror are. Bullets don't avail you. Um, axes and other things don't really help much. What shields you is holy symbols and innocence. And uh, these sort of weird rituals of 
uh, of innocence or um, analogies of innocence. Like vampires can't come into your home unless you invite them. That is an analogy for so many sins. It's basically an analogy for sin itself, right? Uh, I don't know if analogy is the right word. You have to forgive me. But that's really horror in, at its core. Um, even, you know, take the werewolf myth. You're a man who's innocent, who gets bitten by another werewolf. You become cursed. You know, you have the pentagram, uh, the satanic symbol burned into the palm of your hand. Um and you go wild when the full moon comes and you rend other innocent people. Um, and then silver bullets, silver being a sign of innocence, a sign of, of purity, of moral purity, um, kill you. Um, and that returns you to the state of a man instead of the state of a beast. Um, so it's more direct in this movie because they're talking and vampires are held off by a cross, which is the faith of the person matters. The cross holds them off and then you have to find them when they're weak and, uh, cut off their head and put in other symbols of virtue and innocence and purity to make sure they stay dead and, and things like that. And innocent people can be bitten by a vampire and become corrupted. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's very much horror speaks to those terrible things and boy did i do this bit last week or what but this is a different <laughs> thing you i'm did. talking about the, i'm talking about not the why horror exists and what good it does i'm talking about what horror is um horror classic horror is a supernatural evil hurts the innocent and is dispelled with um, supernatural means that are reflective of faith in, in the divine or reflected of purity or reflective of innocence or whatever. So symbols of innocence. Um, Vampires aren't reflected in mirrors because mirrors have silver backings. Again, that silver being a symbol of purity and uh, vampires don't have a soul. So they can't be seen in the mirror. Um, so on and so forth. I'm, uh, yeah, but that's the point. Uh, and this is very much a movie about a supernatural evil demons. And it is, uh, it is a priest who finds his faith through confrontation with supernatural evil. And this girl, um, 
Uh, I'm sorry. It's like a 40-year-old movie. Uh, Spoil away. Or a 50-year-old movie. Um, so this movie is, is, is either as old as I am or older than I am. Um, so when you, uh, the power of Christ compels you, they use holy water, they use, uh, crosses and they use the power of their faith and innocents are hurt. The girl is tortured. Um, but she is saved by the power of, of their faith. The mother is a thoroughly modern woman with no belief in God. And this priest, through this harrowing, um, through this harrowing experience, is, is finds his faith again. And um, so the story beneath the story is that through privation and through coming to realize that, yes, the supernatural evil is real. And yes, his training as a psychologist is right. Maybe almost all the time. Maybe he'll never face something like this ever again. But supernatural evil is real and so is the power of the divine because it is through the power of the divine not through any mankind power of man that helps dispel this demon and helps save this little girl and so i think it's a movie that very very uh beneath the obvious scary things which are scary it's very effective Beneath the uh, scary things, it's a movie which deeply reinforces faith, and and that's what I love about it. Um, well said. I, although I, I do want to riff on that, you, one of the reasons besides how good and true the story is, the one of the reasons it is so effective is because of the technical mastery as well. The oh yeah, uh, the cast is absolutely amazing uh the editing uh you know the the movie as i said it it takes its time to have everything unfold before your eyes but it isn't by any means slow uh and the i think the most famous thing that we haven't really talked about the most famous thing about the movie is the amazing practical effects uh, crazy stuff like heads turning around, you know, 180 degrees, and and the pea suit projectile vomit, and you know the scarring and the and the makeup, but all the makeup and the practical effects and everything, outstanding. Yeah, uh, uh, it's it's also a very well executed film. It's not it's not schlocky. It, 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 it lives up to the story it's trying to tell. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, there's, uh, what can I say? Five stars, basically flawless movie. It is as good as everybody says. It's a classic for a reason. Uh, it's, I'm shocked I haven't seen it. I hadn't seen it before. Yeah. I, I, 
I don't have anything else to say about it in those sense. It's it is a great movie and it is well worth your time to see if you haven't seen it yet. I would highly recommend it. Absolutely. I think I'm I'm going to put it on my list to watch. Uh, I I don't know if I'm going to watch it uh, every year, but I've I've begun a nice Halloween movie tradition and and this one goes at the top of the list. Um, um Good show. Good show. Um, before we move on to, uh, I mean, we can leave it there. Before we move on to D&D and stuff, anything else uh, Halloween related that you want to go over? I don't have a... No, but it's November. So I want to sneak in a non-Halloween movie. Do it. Um, the movie is called Finch. And I'm glad I looked this up on IMDb before I talked about it, because I was about to say Frank. <laughs> and you should be forewarned, the movie is not called Frank. So just wipe the name Frank out of your mind, because I'm not going to mention Frank again this entire review. Oh, so what did you think of Frank? <laughs> um, Finch is an Apple TV Plus original movie and Apple's brand with the TV shows and the movies that they've made are kind of prestige pictures and you knew that as soon as Apple got into the streaming game making original content that they would be making content that kind of fit in with their reputation as a um as a manufacturer, um, which is, you know, finely made, really good looking, you know, taking care of every detail, so on and so forth, um, objects, and that the shows and stuff would be the same way, which is why uh, everyone loved the you got to help me out here. What was the uh, football movie? The soccer movie. The soccer movie? TV show. Oh, Ted Lasso? Ted Lasso, yeah. Um, and uh, they had a movie called Coda that just won Best Picture at the Oscars, as well as a couple of other Oscars, literally two other Oscars, um, last year. So... I mean, the ceremony was this year, but it was for last year's Oscars. Um, so Finch, not Frank, Finch is a prestige picture in that it has a clearly adequate budget. And I don't mean it adequate by anything else but, you know, a large budget to do what they needed to do. I don't know that it had an overly lavish budget, but it's certainly the special effects and everything else about the movie looked very well cared for. Um, and it had Tom Hanks in a starring role. So obviously they had enough money to get Tom Hanks on board. He's done two, two Apple 
original movies. The other one's called Greyhound. It's about a captain on a uh, World War II uh, fleet of cargo ships hauling ammunition and supplies across the Atlantic to uh, the soldiers in World War II in Europe being hunted by a wolf pack of German U-boats. I haven't seen that one yet. I really do want to. Sounds exciting. The The preview, the trailer looked really, really good. So this is a post-apocalyptic movie. And um, it deals with a lot of themes that are frankly common in sci-fi. However, like I say a lot, quality justifies its own existence. So if you deal with a common theme, but you make a quality book or a quality movie, then you have justified dealing with that common theme because you made something worth it. So this is not a flawless picture, but it's good enough to justify having dealt with the common theme. Uh, Finch, the man, lives in a, uh, a bunker-esque building after this apocalypse. Uh there was a massive solar flare that basically fried everything. And I, I, I think I tweeted about this last week or the week before, before I watched this movie. It was really eerie. Um, I was like, that's it. Bring on the solar flare. I'm all for that. <laughs> you know, I mentioned the solar flare from like the 1850s that melted all the, uh, it was so huge, it literally melted all the uh, telegraph wires. Um, so if that came around nowadays, it would disintegrate our electronic lifestyle. It would kill all our power plants. It would kill all our power wires. It would kill all cell phone uh, towers. It would kill every electronic and electrical gadget we have irrevocably. All of that would be gone. Everything, uh, every CD, every physical media you have that wasn't a book would be wiped out. We would lose all of that. Uh, everything that wasn't literally film and books, gone, toasted. Ugh. Airplanes would fall from the sky. All of the uh, you know, machines in hospitals keeping people alive, gone. Uh, so, and this really literally happened in the 1850s. We have it, his matter of historical record. So... In this movie, something like that happened. Um, and because of that, 
they have continuing problems with uh, with the sun. You can't go out shielded in the sun because uh, UV rays pour right through. And if you're out in the sun for more than literally two minutes, your skin becomes to fry off you and you will get cancer very, very quickly. Um, with any more than just a little bit of exposure. So there are super storms that regularly, you know, flash over the land and Finch has to, he, you can't grow crops with these wind and lightning storms. Basically, they, they, now that I'm saying this, they remind me of the, the storms that you saw in, like, Fury Road. Those huge windstorms, or the Mad Max video game from 2015. Those of you who uh, played that and liked it, I loved it. Um, you should play it, too, if you haven't already. I think I reviewed that in uh, one of these shows. Pretty sure mm -hmm. I did. Yeah. Um, so in the middle of this, he has been programming a robot's brain with all of the books in the library that he has. When he figures out that there is a massive storm coming his way that's going to be so massive it'll wreck the place he's living in. So he has to have an emergency bailout, which he's been preparing for for a long time because he is a smart man. He's got a vehicle ready that he's been prepping for a long time. Um, this robot that he's been building, so now he has two live robots, is, is ready to go. Um, and he has with them a living dog and these two robots. And the rest of the movie is about trying to teach the newest robot that he's been programming with all these books to how to um, keep the dog alive. Because he wants someone to take care of the dog uh, after he dies. Um, Honest Tigger Betsy, I watched this movie on Sunday because um, he's dying from cancer. Huh. Hadn't put that together till right now. Sorry. Um, so, anyways, he, he built. <laughs> yeah, Twilight Zone theme plays. <laughs> <laughs> um so he uh um he uh creates this robot with the primary purpose of keeping the dog alive when he's gone. And the themes it deals with are the themes of, you know, of the robot, of AI, of it's a, is it alive, 
you know, trying to teach it, dealing with the adolescence of the robot, um, trying to teach it to be cautious in this world where people are, they've kind of gone crazy. I was talking to a very good friend of mine last night. Um, he is the, ins the insanely busy um, famous writer who I've mentioned before, whose name I don't drop because that's how much I care about their friendship is, and they haven't asked me not to. I just decided that they're a good friend of mine and I don't drop their name to make me look cooler or something. But uh, well, you, couldn't, you couldn't look cooler anyway. <laughs> several months ago, I mentioned that uh, I had a famous writer who, uh, you know, could only slot me in for 10 minutes because they were so busy. Um, but uh, we talked for about an hour last night. And one of the things he talked about is that a lot of people who are villains were doing evil things or doing villainous things uh, with the intent of keeping uh, with the intent of feeding their families like they were raiding other settlements and taking their food because they were trying to feed their families it didn't excuse the evil things they did but from their point of view that was their justification they were trying to survive and so that justified what they were doing to other people now i mention this because in this world there were a lot of people doing evil things justifying it by they needed food they needed you know tools they needed supplies gasoline whatever um and again that they were keeping the lights on neither by my friend nor by me i'm, I'm not saying that justifies doing evil things to people that absolutely does not justify it but that is part of the explanation in their head as to why they are justifying it to themselves so again that's easily misunderstood just don't get me wrong on that so we talked about that for a little bit last night um so um so we uh so what what happened in the in the film he had to teach the robot why he couldn't just go around treating everyone like friends because there were a lot of people who absolutely were not friends because of their desperate situations um and then the rest of the movie follows from that but this movie proved a lot of contentions that I have been putting out in the world. First off, it is absolutely an adventure movie. Um, yes, this had those thinky kind of themes to it that are even, you know, well-worn themes. It was good enough. It was high enough quality to justify using them. And it uh, 
it was an adventure movie because they go from adventure to adventure, from episode to episode, uh, teaching and learning, and the man learns some, and the robot learns some, and the dog doesn't learn anything because it's a dog. <laughs> but it's a cool dog, and you like the dog anyway. Dogs the can dog learn stuff. Dogs can <laughs> learn stuff, just not moral lessons. Yeah. The dog is not psychic. It does not talk. It is not a mutant dog. It's just a dog, but it's cute and it does doggy things. It is not a pocket dog. It is not a pouch dog. It is a big, um, it, it looks like a, a German shepherd or something. I don't think it is, but it looks like a German shepherd. Um, so it's a manly dog, you know, it's a nice dog. It's the kind of dog you want to have on by your side if you're traveling on a road trip through the apocalypse. Um, so yeah, it was a good movie. So this proves that you can have thinky stuff in the middle of an adventure story. Uh, this proves that you can have a prestige picture made movie in an adventure story. So yeah, it, it was, you know, financed by Apple or made by Apple, but it wasn't, you know, head up its rear um, hating the audience kind of movie. It didn't spit in the faces of the audience. It didn't, you know, it didn't push the message. It wasn't about Marxism and how cool that is. It wasn't about um, whatever weird social trend. It was about a very simple thing. Man make robot take care dog. Men teach robot lesson how to survive. So, yeah. I'm not saying it made it worth it to go out and subscribe to Apple TV Plus just to watch it. I'm, I'm not saying that. And there were some flaws in the story. It felt like the events and the learning of the robot hustled along a little bit too fast. It felt like Maybe the maybe the robot wouldn't learn his lessons about as fast as it did. Um, some things happen a little bit too abruptly, but yeah, it was a good movie. It was an enjoyable movie. It was an adventure movie, and uh, I don't know that those things are all really rare. So I liked it. I'd give it a recommend if you. If you have Apple TV Plus, uh, Finch is a movie worth spending a couple hours watching. Cool. I like a good man and dog story and robot and robot dog story. <laughs> man ro and and Tom Franks, who's a who's a good actor. <laughs> so that's that's my uh, November movie review. Sounds good. I think that's it. The only other thing I wanted to talk about today was uh, was I wanted to do a Brovenloft recap, oh. uh, but that that could be a, that could be a little or a long time. We could save it for a whole episode. Or I I got something on Brovenloft. I don't know if you saw this or not. Yeah. So, dear Earl Brunig, the Elf King, Ooh. he put out he put out a tweet. Five minutes after midnight, 
on October 1st. He put out a tweet that said that the elf king had been assassinated. And then, now this is important. This was a lie. This was a ruse because his armies were not powerful enough to stand up to the armies of the people around him. So he was trying to ruse people into not attacking him. So he announced his own assassination. And he fooled the Pope into thinking that this was a real assassination. So the Pope put out the news that the elf king had been assassinated. And then very early on, I and several others thought that assassination was real. And so I believe, what day was October 1st? That was the uh, Saturday. That was a Saturday. So later that day, this was like less than... uh, you know, just a few hours later, we came on Geek Gab to announce to the world that the Elf King had been assassinated barely into the start of Grovenloft. And that's when apparently everybody believed it that's when it became absolutely rock solid news you could depend on that's it all we had to do was speculate on some tweets and and what might have happened yeah i'm pretty sure i said the elf king is apparently dead i might have been more firm and 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 vigorous about that. <laughs> oh, I bought it. I bought it hook, line, and sinker. Oh, yeah. So did I. But I usually try to hedge things when I'm saying them. Um, the the yeah. Geek Gab Misinformation Network. Yeah. I, that was fun to play a, a part in Brovenloft in a way that I did not expect to play. So the... The big thing in Brovenloft the last uh, week or two after, uh, or the last week after um, it got over, is that we, uh, people have been doing tell-alls. That is, they've been uh, writing up what happened in Brovenloft from their point of view, and then uh, listing them out. So uh, the Rat Network, uh, the Rat Spy Network, um, detailed how they had gotten pressed in from all sides and became a de facto uh, part of the uh, part of the Pope faction. Pope faction's secret police. Um, we figured out why the Elf King went so hard against King Starappa. That was on the principle of 
uh, talk it, get hit. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's been really interesting reading these, uh, behind the scenes looks at the, um, that Brovenloft's bronze theme. I'm really glad I got to, uh, run two modules during the month that tied directly into um, the patron game because I felt like that would be fun for the players and that definitely needed to happen during Brovenloft, something that was in Brovenloft so we didn't squander the opportunity. Um, the first module, uh, Eddie the Lich, uh, who came from the cover of... Um, Iron Maiden albums, uh, I set up a module where players could go in, go through these things, save a town, and also could use this blessing in the town to hurt or have a chance to hurt any one evil patron on the board. They get to pick. So the players all voted and they voted for Eddie the Lich. Um, and so then I turned that result over to Kess. Um, and Kess uh, decided he uh, was going to have the Judas Priest Eagle come down and attack Eddie the Lich. Um, so any of you who saw that eagle come down and attack Eddie and were wondering why the heck that happened, that happened as a direct result of a module I ran and the vote of the players. Something else would have happened if they had voted for any other uh, patron. Uh, Kess would have come up with something else for any other patron. So, um, and the second module I ran was an Egyptian-themed module, and it was about... Um, it was basically contained a lot of references to the mummy and it was about players had a choice. I was hoping they were going to go for an evil party because everybody the week before had been talking about how much they missed playing an evil party and how much they wanted to play an evil party. But when it came down to, you know, getting the start on the module, they all picked a, a party of good characters, uh, which is fine the module led was open for that too. Um, so if they had gone one way with the evil party, they would have brought back uh, Kingster Rappa. And then I would have turned that result over to Kess and he would have set it up with uh, Alex in whatever way they thought was fair. Um, and I don't know how that would have gone. I don't know what would have happened with that. I would have just turned it over to Kess. Hey, this is what happened. We did a mummy thing and uh, they resurrected Kings the Rapper. Um, or, uh, which is what did happen, it went the other way. They stopped Kings the Rapper from being uh, released and they utterly destroyed the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Um, and they got to raid the temple of the uh, cobra cult and uh, came away with some nice loot. So yeah, once again, 
even though people didn't notice anything happening, that had a bit effect, big effect on the patron play because Kingston Rappa remained dead. That could have just as easily gone the other way. Uh, could have gone the other way if they got killed. Could have gone the other way if uh, they had failed. Or could have gone the other way if they had uh, jumped in on the evil side. And I, I th the real takeaway here is how much a success the uh, Rovenloft Brownstein was on its terms. Uh, we, we're going to talk about uh, some of the mistakes and, and problems with it, but it provided a backdrop for multiple games in multiple systems even to interact and uh, including players and DMs who wouldn't who don't necessarily or normally interact and it provided a great setting for any game master to present a uh, you know a Brovenloft theme game for their players uh, which you did successfully and so did uh, Macho Mandalf had a couple of Gnome King themed adventures as well and we were able to influence the results of the map what a smashing success. And my hat's off to Kest for actually doing the Game Master duties. Uh, and he was a trooper, too, because um, I don't know. Have I discussed my actual role in uh, in Brovenloft on, on no. the show? No, but you should. But I'm going to say one thing. Yeah. I came to Kess and I said, look, I want to run this module. And at the end of the module... They're going to take a pot shot at one of the evil people on the map, and I don't know which one. They're going to vote on it. And he said, sure, do it. That's how much of a trooper he is. Uh, he's, he, he's, he's absolutely amazing. He trusted me as the game master to run a module that would justify them taking a pot shot at any one of the evil patrons just on my, you know, say so and he did it uh he was willing to tweet out a rumor ahead of time and the pope was a good uh sport willing to treat uh tweet out a rumor and then announce a mission to send people on uh the adventure so i had two people who were pushing up a couple of days in advance of our thursday night playtime to set Get the ball rolling. So, you know, I want to say thanks especially to those guys. But it's your turn now. Absolutely. And this will serve as my after-action report because I uh, I do not have a blog, and I technically have a Twitter, but it's more of a read-only thing. Uh, I played a mid – sorry, a low-level magic user who, if you recall way back in the dark days of September – um, a certain safe haven was nuked. So I had a low-level wizard who had just finished training with the evil lord of uh, Trilopolis. And all of a sudden we're surrounded by radioactive zombies and stuff. Uh, we encountered Kangsta Rapper who had actually... 
he had he had predetermined this. He had actually plane shifted to the area in order to recruit followers, including the Dark Lord of Trollopolis. He wanted he wanted Zanzel on his side. So at the beginning of Brovenloft, I got sucked in I got sucked in in September and long story short, uh, I ended up managing all of the divination spells done by the Dark Alliance. I was I was basically you know running back and forth figuring out how many spells I have to cast each day and uh, what we were going to scout out, what we were going to find. And uh, I wish I had done a better job because the Dark Alliance didn't do so hot. But divination spells don't work against uh, Twitter fifth generation warfare of misinformation. I tell you what. Um, but that's not the whole story. And this is where I, uh, I get to brag a little bit because... Yeah, that was a pain in the butt, and it was a lot of work. And my hat's off to Kess. This is this is what I, I wanted to say. This dude is getting nonstop direct messages from me and, you know, a dozen other people because it's nonstop magical fact-finding. And he's he's got to play. He's got to talk to this guy and that guy. Hey, you're being scried. What do we see? You're being scried. What do we see? And so he handled that. But that wasn't enough for me because I remember to look at my character sheet. My character sheet says neutral evil. And you bet handed that much power at my disposal. I used it directly for my benefit. And uh, first of all, I robbed the Turks. Uh, uh, while scouting around for enemy troop movements, I found a Turk caravan with a lot of treasure. Guess what? 12th level clerics can cast a spell that can steal the treasure for me. So me and Kangsta and Zanzel all got a nice payday for that. Uh, then, at the start of the month, World War Wish actually removed Zanzel, the, you know, the Dark Lord of Trollopolis, and a few other important characters out of there. So my character, using his, his ill-gotten gains immediately added Zanzil's complete magical library to his inventory of <laughs> ill-gotten gains. <laughs> uh, skip ahead, it turns out that Zanzil was still alive and uh, asked for his stuff back and didn't kill me. So uh, I think we're good now. We're, st we're still good. We're still bros. Uh, what else? I should, I should, I you, started keeping it. You gotta respect that. Oh yeah, as <laughs> I, mean, I like, oh yeah, I would have done the same thing. Sith recognizes Sith, you know. Yep. Uh, let's see what else. My uh, my biggest coup though was during the battle for Cecilvania, the the one that happened in a day, but took them like a week to resolve. Being a at that point, I had made it to fourth level just based off of the events in September. Um, being a fourth level wizard with a few combat spells, I actually wasn't there to be much help in combat. Uh, so that my orders to Kest were, I'm just going to stay invisible and look for an opportunity to help. And then once the once the 
walls were breached and they were fighting in and around the courtyard of Castle Brovenloft, I switched. I said, okay, Kest, I'm spending the rest of the battle. I'm going to jump. I'm going to um, shoot the gap and go into Castle Brovenloft while everyone's distracted and loot. <laughs> and 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 uh, he, this guy is such a trooper because he's dealing with all these patrons doing this and that, all these stupid requests. And here I am bugging this guy, like I'm essentially playing Dungeons and Dragons by note. And uh, and he went he went with it. He's like, yeah, everybody's so distracted, including all the vampires. And frankly, none of them were high enough level to be able to naturally detect an invisible wizard. So, long story short, if uh, if Count von Kaut rolls up a treasure hoard, he might as well ignore any gem results he rolled. Uh, I basically looted his treasury and got out alive without being killed by the Dacrosaurus or Kangsta's insect swarms or anything. Um, bragging over what a great job by by Kess, actually amongst all of that stuff, handling that. And I think, frankly, he did it because he thought it was freaking hilarious that... You know this this one guy with seven hit points and and balls of steel is gonna run in amongst a an army of a thousand vampires and uh, <laughs> and a rampaging T-Rex and steal as much loot as he can. I got lucky, hey. but it paid off. Everyone else is distracted. What you gonna do? I mean. I read the player's handbook. I know how to get experience points. I need to get the money. Um, and then, uh, so that was great. I had a ton of fun. I I helped out with the patron game, both as a you know as a part of the alliance and in those modules that uh, you and Chris ran. And that was a ton of fun. What a great idea. Um, so I recommend everybody check out the play reports from everybody else. Uh, I do want a, a little bit of news for anybody, and this is not misinformation. This is actual news. Uh, Brovenloft ended really quiet on the patron front, but we had a glorious battle between the, that Dacrosaurus and uh, some other kaiju monster. Um, the Dacrosaurus lost. So if you have characters in Brovenloft, there's a lot of extremely valuable material that might still be out there for you to loot if you want to brave the battlefield. I know, because um, an invisible mage and his druid companion went in and looted about 50,000 gold pieces worth of it. Uh, it was me, if you hadn't guessed. <laughs> so, fantastic fun, lots of opportunities, even if you're just gonna uh, play by DM. Um, I, I want to. That's it. I want to switch to a couple of things that didn't work and a preview of what's coming up in December. Um, from my perspective, a few things didn't work. Kest didn't really have enough time to resolve it, everything. Uh, and obviously, the battle for Cecilvania was outstanding, but having to wait for, for everybody from multiple time zones to have playtime was awkward. Uh, so the patron pa patrons acting without a limitation is a rough one uh, i think future future games like it might switch to daily orders or weekly orders or something like that 
or have you know set times when people are around to do stuff or have um, um, multiple dms yeah multiple dms are going to be necessary yeah kest even suggested yeah i think i'm going to have one guy just dedicated to handling divination requests um i think the uh i think the power level of the patrons was hilarious but wish being what it is uh i i think there needs to be there a, a a little more reined in the patrons need to be a little more reined in um especially when it came to armies even though the count really i mean the count got kangsta killed and everything uh kangsta's army of like a hundred thousand clerics was absurd uh, let's let let's rein that in and rein in the wishes and rein in the powers. Uh, was there anything anything that you thought didn't go well that we learned? Um, I really thought that uh, the Ravenloft nature of Brovenloft needed to be heavily um, emphasized from the beginning. I I think it needed to be more like Silent Hill um, because it's not an insta-kill zone, don't get me wrong, but the mists needed to be like this omnipresent sort of... Uh, sort of feeling even when they're not physically there you should feel their malevolence and you should really be afraid to go out at night even player characters you know and you should want to make preparations to defend yourselves at night um i think that allowing people easy and quick access in and out from the beginning, Kess quickly stopped that. Um, and I, I think then, and I don't know about any other game, but you remember uh, the blah, 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 uh, Stormbringer sword battle, right? Yeah, of course. He had those random events that just popped up on some days. I think it would have been great to have events that happened that affected everybody um, just to keep things rolling. Um, I think a lot of patrons just kind of turtled. And the reason why we didn't have more... Um, I love I love the idea of of random events and other ways to get people uh, integrated. That's a fantastic idea. But I do think there's a much simpler explanation for what happened with the patrons. Even from the beginning land grab, uh, a couple people called out that the map was too large. Uh, and from my perspective, I don't know if anybody's said this, but John Mollison was paying attention. There was no win condition at all. It was just, it was like, let's have fun monster horror and have everybody fight over. It was, a, it was a ton of fun, but they weren't actually fighting over anything. Right. There was nothing uh, they were striving for. 
yeah so i i think those are those are at the root like you you need to solve those and then uh, once you have those solved then uh then you're gonna have a, a proper game and your idea about the mists and and the events i really appreciate that because that's more player centric and i think that was another one of the weaknesses that the the people like you who came up with modules really had to just invent everything from whole cloth some of the patrons gave um some of the patrons gave more helpful information than others um uh, i was ragging on b-dubs for making twin peaks boring but he did he provided some at least some uh, monster tables and things for uh, our dungeon master to use and uh you know the pope really tried to make his place a place to adventure like he even put internal villains in his domain yeah and i i basically my thought on making adventures for grovenloft and this is what i carried out was well they've got um twin peaks here so I'll stick a early 2000s Germantown here, you know, from our world, basically, uh, where they know Twin Peaks is fiction. <laughs> see what happens. See what happens. You know, let them run with that. And that turned out to be a really good session. And then I thought, okay, well, I'll stick, you know, Cairo from The Mummy in here and stick it in the desert where Kingston used to be and see what happens. Um, so yeah, I just, once Twin Peaks got put in there, I figured anything was, was fair game. And I just wanted to, uh, give the player something to do that I purposely made that would impact the wider, um, impact the wider game as well as being an adventure. Um, Well, that, so, that good. No, I, I well, was about to change the subject. So, oh yeah, no, I, I want to move on. What I was leading to was actually John Mollison has picked up on some of those uh, flaws in the event, and he's decided to try his hand at a similar Brownstein with some of those flaws fixed. Have you heard about this yet? I haven't at all. Okay, he posted like a week or two ago that he was going to do a Brownstein uh, in December, or he's going to he's going to do like or October or something like that. And naturally, the demand was so great that he said, "Okay, okay, I'm gonna, we're going to do it in December." So he's doing Rise of the Orc Lords. It's going to be a Brownstein, and uh, it's very similar to Brovenloft. He's got his map out, and, but the difference is is that he's reining in the patrons by giving them all the same baseline, and they're actually going to draft location and special abilities instead of making it a free-for-all. Uh, so it's going to be like a, a, a fantasy football-style draft. And um, he has a win condition. The, the setup is that there's a, you know, the orc lord of this domain who demands tribute from all of his, you know, from all the tribes. And so they can gain points by 
delivering and gathering tribute in the form of gold and slaves. And that's it. Every player's out there to get the most points. And you get the most points by defeating your rivals, by, you know, harvesting, you know, thereby getting their treasure and orcs as slaves. There's a, a bunch of NPC locations that you can attack and loot. And these are like big towns where you have to, you can't just take one army in, right? Because everybody's going to have at most like 300 orcs. And you're not going to be able to defeat the thousands strong dwarf fortress with just 300 orcs, right? So he's he's attempting to seed the game with both a win condition and situ, you know, the incentives for people to make form and break alliances. The Sembor, that's the one. Thanks, Simon. Um, and you can check out. He started. Uh, writing up the details, including the rules on the draft and who's playing at orclords.blogspot.com. I got to remember to put that in the, in the show notes, but uh, I think he's really paying attention to what happened. And this one's going to be a big success uh, because he simplified a lot of the rules. And for those of you who are like me, who just want to know where the loot is, I asked him if he plans on supporting um, D&D games inside this area, and that's a maybe. That's a maybe. He'd like to have it happen, but he's not sure what is, how he's going to handle that, like what the rules are going to be on how to get in and out and and the rules of engagement and everything. Because I think the last thing he wants is, you know, well, okay, my, uh, I think he'd be great if my level 7 magic user came in and invisibly stole all of the orc lord stuff i don't think he'd be okay if uh you know the eddie the lich showed up and wished half the goblin army away you know what i mean so i think he's or or if adventurers did our trip typical uh improved phantasmal force deal uh, i think that'd be great yeah in, in fact, that's my uh, spoiler. That's my plan. If if he doesn't have any big plans for it, I think I'm going to see about having my uh, my mage sign up with one of the orc armies and as as a support wizard for uh, for a week or two. See how it goes. But we'll see how it goes. Uh, I think I think I'm done there. I'm gonna I'm gonna put that link in the show notes after the show, but orclords.blogspot.com. December is going to be wild. Um, Brovenloft was a smash hit, and uh, it's next year. They're doing it again next year. It's going to be absolutely exciting. People were complaining that the Groessar didn't have uh, actual play records, actual play experiences, and now... Who we said that, bro? Bros are the only ones with play experiences. <laughs> now we can point to this as being something that, you know, when has anybody else done something like this recently? I mean, this is huge. Uh, to have all these campaigns crossover, um, to have villains from all these campaigns show up, in fact, yeah. I was just just reading earlier during the show. There's a Broasar dungeon master 
who wants to run his normal weekly game tonight, and he's he has people uh, saying, "Oh yeah, I want to play tonight. I want to play tonight." My guy's there. It, like he's got people, he's got player characters from other campaigns dropping into his world, and he doesn't even know it yet. <laughs> That's what happens when you run with the Brosar. And the thing that makes it possible, one-to-one time. Yep. Because today is today everywhere in every BroSR campaign. And we all know that. We don't have to worry about it. If you get to the end of your D&D game and the Game Master says, okay, let's pause there and pick it up right where we are next week, find another game. Settle for nothing less than the best. Well, I think uh, we are, I think our new time is 90 minutes, DW. So we are right on time, right on time. I'm going to cut it short there. Uh, Video Mirador, I got good news for you and everybody else. Uh, uh, We had fun chatting with everybody live, but you can watch this on YouTube as soon as we're done. And uh, Daddy Warpick will give you the details on everywhere else you can listen to it. And I hope everybody who does listen later really enjoys the banter, checks out some classic uh, horror movies, and uh, maybe considers to add a little one-to-one time to their tabletop role-playing game. Uh, Daddy Warpig, as always, thank you for being the best co-host ever. Uh, And I'm signing off for this week. The floor is yours. All right, folks. Thank you for turning in, tuning in. Um... See, now I've got turn around every now and then. Sorry. All right. Yeah. No, this is not karaoke hour, boar pig. <laughs> oh, I just said turning and, and the song jumped into the front of my mind. It literally scattered my thoughts. I was just hey. sitting there. No, no, I got this. I got this, folks, uh, because uh, I'm a ledge. And that means it doesn't mean lecher, actually, which is what I first thought. It means legend. So, you know, it's them crazy Brit slang. Um, I'm a ledge and so are you. Um, welcome to Geek Gab. We're here just about every week at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. You can catch us on youtube.com slash geekgab. Once again, that's youtube.com slash geekgab. Or you can listen to us on the Google Play Store on the soundcloud.com or on the Apple iTunes store. I want to thank everyone who listened live and I want to thank everyone who will listen later. Uh, If you were live, you could participate in the chat and Hey, everyone who listens later, uh, if you have a chance to uh, come in and jump on the chat, we have a lot of great people who are uh, here on a regular basis and uh, they are well worth uh, sharing a bit of your knowledge and uh, picking up a bit of their knowledge We are signing out for today, folks. But don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.